This is a Protos podcast. There's many old cliche sayings that reflect on people's inability to learn from the past. In 1905, George Santayana famously wrote, Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Alexis de Tocqueville said, History is a gallery of pictures in which there are few originals and many copies. But the quote that feels most relatable to what we're discussing today is by the great Mark Twain. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. We've spent the past two episodes describing what Blockchain City and the Innovation Zone, wherein it's to exist, are, and the big promises they're making to the people of Nevada. But today, we'll be chronicling the past and remembering company towns, mostly because the Blockchain City looks like a modern-day version of one. At least on paper. Join us for Episode 3 of Innovated Blockchain City. Seeing as how neither Bennett nor I are experts in company towns or how they used to operate, we decided to enlist the help of someone who is. I'm Angela Vergara, and I'm a history professor at Castell. So I think what we would like to start with understanding a little bit better is where company towns came from, especially in the United States. What's the history of their formation and creation? Company towns have a long history, and they date back all the way to the 19th century. They were, especially in the U.S., connected to the expansion of the mining industry. So you have, like, copper towns and coal towns, especially in what we can call, like, the frontier of very isolated regions. In those places, they emerge as a way to solve the housing need and to really uh, attract the workforce. Are there any other benefits to the company town model that you can think of or point to? Thinking more of like a societal benefit rather than a benefit to the company itself. I think in some ways, um, I can't think of many benefits, mostly because the um, experience of company towns were always shaped by this oppression and control that even the benefits as providing housing was not really that important in the context of the other risk. I also think that in places that were isolated, um, the exploitation of mining resources, this massive occupation of the territory and bringing new population also had a strong environmental cost. But the most famous failure of a company town in U.S. history isn't on the great frontier or out west. Instead, it's likely the tale of Pullman, Illinois. And to emphasize the inherent issues with company towns, similar to what the Innovation Zone looks like, it's worth describing what happened there in 1894. Pullman, a town which, as of today, has been absorbed by the city of Chicago, was started by the creator of the Pullman sleeping car, the aptly named railroad baron George Pullman. Pullman realized there was a problem that both he and his workers faced every day. Commuting. The problem was that if you didn't live close to where you worked, getting to work became a sincere and real issue. The solution was to create a town around the manufacturing plant so that no one ever had an excuse to not show up to work. So George Pullman, along with many other robber barons, did so. And for years, 
Holman, Illinois was the 24-karat jewel at the center of an industrial ring, a brilliant example of how to keep your workers in line, earn 4-5% return on investment through renting tenements, and still retain the most important name in luxury travel. But all good things must come to an end, and the end for Pullman, Illinois began in 1893 with the death of a competitor. There's a lot of speculation going on with the value of different railroad lines, and one of the more famous lines that is featured in Monopoly, Reading Railroad, goes under. They have way more debt than they have assets, they go bankrupt, and it leads to basically not a run on banks, but a run on railroad businesses. And featured heavily in the railroad business is the railroad baron, George Pullman. And to solve this crisis, because now no one's buying Pullman sleeping cars, he decides to fire a bunch of workers, lower the wages of others, and increase the rent on all of the homes in the town that he owns. You can see how this is a problem for the workers there. They decide, famously Eugene V. Debs, gathers all of the workers to strike. They strike, and the National Guard is brought in, and many, many workers are killed and forced to go back to work. One of the reasons I find it easy to associate the Innovation Zone with company towns is actually because if you go to the Innovation Zone like lobbying website, which is innovationzonefacts.com, at the very bottom of the frequently asked question section is the question, is an Innovation Zone a company town? Now, of course, their answer for that is no. So it says, no, an innovation zone will be comprised of a wide range of businesses and organizations doing business in the innovation zone. Not all of these will be affiliated with the developer, for innovation zones are not created for the exclusive purpose of any one company or group, but as an incubator for a broad range of innovation. But if we look at the range that the innovation zone had purchased... There were no other businesses in that in that section. It was only Blockchains LLC, right? And it's only supposed to be Blockchains LLC because there has to be a single applicant for an area to become an innovation zone. Right. So even their description of like, it's not a company town because of this is just straight up false. In the future, there could potentially be other businesses once Blockchains LLC sells them the land and chooses which business they want in the city. And so obviously it's not a company town. How could you possibly think that, Cass? In some places where they built a company towns and there were other camps, um, like independent cities, many times they also entered in conflict and the company did not really invest in regular cities. Instead of building infrastructure school for everybody who lived in the region, the school was segregated only for company employees. So in that sense, it didn't really contribute much to urban growth or urban services. I just think it's very funny that you bring up the frontier and at what cost all of this essentially exploration and innovation was. We're interested in company towns because we're looking into something called an innovation zone. It certainly sounded on paper a lot like a company town to us because they were going to take a few key industries, separate themselves as a new county with roughly 250 residents and... Uh, base everything on, you know, the blockchain. It was all supposed to be based in a tiny, there's no one living there industrial area in northern Nevada. So um, it, it all feels very similar 
But I think also what I'm starting to acknowledge as I'm understanding this is kind of that maybe company towns have been emerging more than I even knew. Like, it seems like people want company towns again. It seems like a common, com- a more common theme than I originally thought about. And I, I just was wondering what your your thoughts are about that. So um, I think that many issues today, and one is maybe that is driving people into thinking more um, positively about company towns, is to make companies pay more or to make them accountable for uh, for broader issues. Um, in a time also where public benefits um, and welfare benefits are sort of shrinking and disappearing, where everything tends to be more privatized, people do want uh, the company to offer more and to offer more benefits. And I think that is an important trend, where it is housing, where it is uh, education, where it is safety, or where it is a creative space where people can grow and create without worrying. So I can see that as an important element. I think on the other hand, and what I'm always suspicious, and when you mentioned the example in Northern Nevada, is, um, is what are the costs of isolating people? Um, and what are the costs, not only of having people who are creative and producing new knowledge completely like isolate from the rest of society, which I think is a problem, but also what are the, um, the costs for people who live in these camps. And my experience studying camps, for instance, uh, is that they need to rely on a very um, a specific view of family, for instance, where only one other person may have a job and the other one has to stay home. Also, when they talk about these frontiers, a place that were unoccupied, that there's really supposedly no one living there, um, I'm always suspicious because there are places that really um, can be easily ignored by authorities and the media. And this is what cuts to the heart of the issue when it comes to company towns, whether established in the 1870s or today, inside the suburbs of Chicago or in the northern deserts of Nevada. In the end, the worker has less rights and the company more. There's no realm, unless you're an industrial authoritarian, where this is a tenable and long-lasting solution to the issues fundamental to capitalism. Even the most successful versions of company towns, some that lasted over a hundred years in the middle of lush California forests, ended in disaster. Was there anything particularly striking you came across in your research? They always fail. Was, was, my, was my takeaway, which was kind of not what I necessarily expected, right? What I noticed is that whether it's due to the unhappiness of the workers or the failure of the company, all of the company towns end up failing at some point. And so my favorite one, the Pacific Lumber Company, it was called Palco, for a hundred years, for over a hundred years, was able to create a company town that was not just not just the crappy version of a company town but like the people liked living there and generally like it was it was just a small town where workers moved their families so they could work there at the lumberyard what ended up happening is that in the 1980s Pacific Lumber Company got a hostile takeover bid that successfully occurred so some some dude took over Palco 
the next thing they knew, the company town was being sold off. It, it doesn't even matter if the initial creators of the company town have all the right priorities aligned and they're doing it for all the right reasons. In the end, it failed miserably and it left workers screwed because then all of their land got sold off by some company. It sucks. I think you're getting at one of the core reasons that company towns are so problematic is that they are often so fundamentally exploitive. It's these companies using their position as the ones with the money and who give the money out to the populace to exert so much control over these individuals and in doing so make these individuals so dependent on their continued existence and continued place as the arbiter of power. And so like... The fears around these innovation zones and around this specific blockchain city is even if it's not meant to be a corporate town, the power structures in place give blockchains LLC and give people who would potentially create other innovation zones so much power over the area that it is inherently exploitive of the people who would come to work there. And while they claim the Painted Rock Smart City was never intended to be a company town, reading the Innovation Zone bill that Blockchain's LLC had such a heavy hand in drafting, it becomes very clear that they wanted power and influence over this city. The city was going to be led by a board of three individuals. Two of those would come directly from a list of five names that Blockchain's LLC would submit. The third would be chosen directly by the governor, which really puts a different light on the large donations that both Blockchain's LLC and Jeffrey Burns made to Governor Sisolak. It seems extraordinarily clear that Blockchain's LLC wanted to make sure that especially early on, they had the control, the power, and the influence over the Painted Rock Smart City. Join us next time for episode 4 of Innovated Blockchain City where we take a deep look at several of the key players who tried to make these innovation zones happen.